the only daily Premier League podcast. This is Football Social Daily. After seven and a half months away, fans will be allowed back into stadiums next month. It's huge, huge news. The news that so many people have been waiting for up and down the land. It's a start, but it doesn't include everyone. And you're not allowed to sing, you're not allowed to chant, and you're not allowed to move about. The first step back to football normality is here, as the government announced their plans to let fans in. But it's far from what we know and love. Forget seven and a half months away, what about 15 years? Because that was the story last night as Theo Walcott ended the wait for a Southampton goal in the 1-1 Premier League draw with Wolves. Plus, Turf Moor was a happy place again as Burnley ended their wait for a first Premier League win by beating Crystal Palace. And Manchester United are today's team under floodlight focus. Their wait for a Premier League title looks like it's going to continue this season. United fan and author Wayne Barton will be joining us to talk United later on. I'm Niall and this is Football Social Daily. No need to wait yourself to hit that subscribe button because you won't be waiting for long for a new Premier League podcast, new shows available every single day of the top flight season. I'm waiting patiently through the intro and joining me on today's show, we've got Stefan Armstrong. How's it going, Stefan? Now and now, I'm really good, thanks, mate. How are you? Very well, thank you, mate. And Marley Anderson's also here. All right there, Marley. Hello, guys. Right, the first thing I'm going to have to do at the start of today's podcast is apologise to every Tottenham Hotspur fan listening to Football Social Daily. On yesterday's podcast, I think I mentioned a couple of times, or maybe even more than that, actually, uh, that Liverpool were top of the Premier League table. That is actually not the case. So sorry, Spurs fans. I know that you're top of the table by goal difference. You've both got 20 points. It was a Monday morning. Come on, boys and girls give me a bit of a break it's been a full-on season maybe you just want to be crowned champions already at the end of November but I'm just kidding no apologies again straight up sorry about that one it's good to see Spurs going well this season so Tottenham are top of the league but enough of that time to talk about the massive news which has broken yesterday it's been announced that football fans will finally be allowed back into stadiums everyone's been waiting so so patiently to see when this day might come and the government have announced that a maximum of 4,000 spectators or 50% of a stadium's capacity whichever number is lower will be allowed into grounds from the 2nd of December Now, the 2nd of December is when the lockdown in England will be lifted. Stefan, as someone who takes in quite a fair bit of non-league football, this is great news, isn't it? Massive news, as I said before, not just for those fans of Premier League football, but football all across the country, up and down the land, because there's been plenty of clubs who've been absolutely desperate for the money that letting fans in brings. It's wonderful news. I tell you what, there's going to be streams of people, up to 4,000, walking down Boobham Crescent Way, going to York City, uh, seeing their last games um, in paradise, in my happy place at Boobham Crescent. So uh, it's it's going to be a a lovely moment. I was just telling Niall just before we uh, we, uh, started recording that, I had a bit of an embarrassing moment uh, a couple of weeks back because I wanted to take some pictures of uh, Boobham Crescent, York City Stadium. Uh, which was once called the Kit Kat Crescent, by the way. Um, really? Yeah, yeah. They, they were sponsored by Nestle or Roundtrees or one of them things. So, um, <laughs> yeah, Kit Kat Crescent. Boom Crescent. Anyway, uh, so I went down to take some last pictures, um, you know, some nice little memories uh, before we moved to a car park stadium on like the on the uh, outer ring road, um, which looks nice, by the way. Um, 
and there was that embarrassing moment where I was like, you know, getting pictures of like the chairman's parking <laughs> spot and like a couple of the old like pie <laughs> meal deal signs, all that sort of stuff. And I wanted a picture of the pitch. So uh, I stood on top of like a big jiffy bin and uh, started like pointing my camera over and the bloody groundsman came and spotted me and sharked me out didn't he <laughs> you got he, rumbled he caught me trying to get pictures of a pitch and do you know what he, he was amazing he was like don't bother doing that come on you can come in lad so uh yeah just stood in the middle of the pitch uh got some pictures with the um with the groundsman it's brilliant <laughs> that's pretty cool to be fair it's not often you get to stand in the middle of the pitch of your local football club but people would give anything right now to go back and watch their sides and thankfully they've been given a little bit of hope on the horizon a glimmer of light so to speak and although it's not exactly how we want it to be Marley there is a capacity limit 4,000 in tier one areas or 50% of the capacity whichever's fewer um, it's a start it's a beginning now there's like I said before you're not able to chant there are rules you can't chant you can't sing you can't move about you can't eat or drink uh, food in the stadium so there are uh, a couple of variable factors but certainly it's a beginning something that a lot of people couldn't see for a while uh, yeah it's um it's just yeah, like like you say, it's a start, isn't it? I mean, it's never going to be ideal, and it's not going to be ideal for for uh, for quite some time. To be honest, I think this this tier thing is basically bridging the gap until this vaccine becomes widely available. And I think the vaccine takes what is it three or four weeks to even like kick in, kind of thing. So if we get it in December, you're probably not up until the new year before you can you can up the attendance uh, a little bit more. Um, but it's you know it's it's something to work with for now. I mean, four thousand, in my opinion, is better than nothing. Um, I think you know you said before you know you're not allowed to move around or shout or sing or anything. But I mean, good luck enforcing that because you're not going to hand out you know three thousand fines on the spot because the home team have scored um, and they've all shouted yes or threw their arms around in the air. I mean, that's a joke. So you you are going to get it. It's going to be as as back to normal as it can be. I think. Um, Mali, to um, be fair, um, only 4,000 fans and no singing. That sounds like a typical Manchester City home game. Really. <laughs> it's a good job you're not on social media, go. Stefan, because you'd be getting absolute pelters <laughs> right now from those people that are Manchester City fans that listen to this podcast. Now, Stefan, you're a bit like me. You love going to away games and... You know, the experience of watching football isn't just the 90 minutes of the game. It's having a few beers in the pub beforehand. It's travelling hundreds of miles sometimes to watch your side. And the fact that there'll be no chanting and no singing and no ability to kind of take in the full experience of a football match, is that going to put you off from going? Or is it been so long that you're just going to go no matter what? Ooh. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if it'll work. If, if I'm being honest... I think most uh, average football fans are like this. I probably only watch about 10 minutes of a football game in 90 minutes when I'm live in the stadium. I'm just like singing, having a few beers, dancing around, moving about, chatting to uh, chatting to randomers, other fans, that sort of stuff. So in the lower leagues, I think it'll be difficult to stop any of that. In in, in the Premier League, 4,000 fans in a stadium of 75,000, that's that's dead easy to handle, isn't it? So all, all the rules that they need to put in place, they'll put in place. But at lower league, um, I doubt they'll be able to do that. But I'm kind of hoping that there'll be a bit of a, a lower league renaissance because of this, because to, to get uh, if you're allowed up to 4,000 fans at a, at a non-league uh, game, then that'd be amazing, wouldn't it? That would, that'd actually be electric. Let's be honest, like... 
See, when hearts go away to Hibs, nobody, nobody's kind of like in the stands anyway. Everybody's at the local park beforehand. It's kind of like taking over that and chanting and chucking beer cans everywhere. So that, that, that'll just happen anyway. But I've, I've been thinking about this overnight and I've, I've come up with a little bit of a philosophy um, about fans being let in the stadium because there's only 4,000 fans being allowed in, aren't they? So um, there's going to be some people who miss out. So that's going to be quite a tough selection process, especially for clubs who've got more than 4,000 briefs um, for the season. So um, I was thinking the role of club ambassador um, isn't, they don't really do much. Um, so I've, I've been watching the Inside Hearts um, documentary on BBC um, and Gary Locke, who is our club ambassador, he tends to only make jokes in the office kind of talks to some sponsors at halftime and just watches games for now. So I'm thinking all of these club ambassadors who don't really do much, they could be on the turnstiles doing the selection process for the 4,000. So you could have somebody like, um, I don't know, uh, Brian Robson uh, on the turnstile and like for people who can down a bottle of Casello Diablo or whatever, quickest is allowed in. <laughs> Give these guys a job. Give them something to do. I can't imagine loads of fans draining bottles of red wine before they get into the stands. But anyway, he's got a point, hasn't he, Stefan? How do you sort of dictate who's allowed into stadiums and who isn't, Marley? Is it a ballot? Is it a ballot of purely season ticket holders? Would it be general sale? Well, firstly, I would just like to say that I would absolutely love to see a football club that Stefan ran. Uh, <laughs> it would be brilliant. I would hand back all my Newcastle shirts, all the memorabilia over the years, and I'd just support Stefan uh, FC. Stefan's, you know, Armstrong FC or whatever it is. Well, I'm, <laughs> Honestly, I'm can you imagine it. a football club where Stefan was the I'm, chairman? I'm, they wouldn't know what his snooker club would be the dressing rooms. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I don't know, it's, it's a tough one because. As you said, you're not giving clubs much time to sort this out, but I think the fairest way, um, I would keep season tickets for next year because um, there's no guarantee that a season ticket holder can go um, to a current a current game. Like if you said, right, there's a game next week um, and the season ticket holder turned around and said, well, you know, I'm not really comfortable going. You know, you can't, you can't he's bought that seat, so you can't give that away. So I, I think the best way to do it is, is maybe just a, a general sale until until next season because next season is now we're much more optimistic that it's going to be back to some uh, like a higher level of normality so maybe just uh hold off on the on the season ticket stuff put put everyone back a year um and then you're not sort of subsidizing what they've got and what they've they've missed out on um and then just just do a general sale and stick them on stick them on sale the first four thousand to get them um are are the lucky ones, you know, like some sort of footballing Willy Wonka with uh, everyone, everyone with a golden ticket, yeah. So, but I mean, obviously, it's it's a bit of a shame that there's only four thousand. But as I said before, it's better than nothing, and it, it still it depends on the tiers that you're in. I mean, Manchester was in tier three before it went into into this second uh, lockdown, so no one's going to be available to go to Man United games and Man City games. And I was looking at um at the tier system and I thought well who who was actually in tier one and I couldn't remember but basically my my mum and dad and um where I grew up uh, is Cumbria so I thought well, well Cumbria was tier one um and then then I realized that the only football stadium in Cumbria is bloody Brunton Park in Carlisle so 
I mean, that only holds, I think it holds 12,000. So, like, they, they're pretty much one of the... I thought their, their average attendance is 4,000. So they can actually get everybody they used, usually get um, or used to get um, in the stadium if, if they can... Uh, if they can sort it out in time, but yeah, I mean... Well, you use Carlisle United as an example, and just to pluck one out of thin air there, these are the sort of clubs who have been really, really struggling with the absence of supporters because they don't get TV broadcast revenue like Premier League clubs get, and the money that they do get from TV rights is kind of filtered down and divvied out equally, so by the time it gets down to League Two, it's peanuts for them. The majority of their income comes from fans buying tickets and going to watch the games physically. Yeah, exactly, so... um... I think it is going to have more of an impact on on League Two and League One and and you know the lower league teams, but so it should because they're the ones more likely to go out of business. You know, I don't think you know I don't know how long you'd have to freeze football for for someone like Man United to go out of business because everyone would have gone by the time they go out because they're the most you know rich club, one of the most rich clubs in the world. So yeah, it should it should go from bottom up, and it, I think the it, that it will because that's that's just how the situation is has played out. So, you know, a few grand to to Carlisle to continue the example is is like a, a life changing amount of money almost. With all that considered, then there's been this argument going around about fairness and the fairness of the Premier League, depending on which areas of the country are in lockdown and are, and are allowed fans in, and which areas of the country aren't. So, for example, you look at. Old Trafford and Manchester, we're currently in Tier 3 here in Manchester. Let's say if that carries on, City and United won't be allowed fans in the stadium. But you could see, for instance, Anfield and Liverpool being in a different tier and then fans being allowed into that stadium. So in terms of whether it's fair or not, does it actually hand an unfair advantage to those clubs with fans allowed in? Or has it been so long and 4,000 is such a trivial amount in these big stadiums that it doesn't really matter? I don't know. It it probably is on on the fan on the sort of reflection of it, but I mean, I think people. Are... Any football player wants to play in front of football fans. Yeah. So I, I think that's going to lift the level of anybody, no matter what. So I don't, I don't buy into the fairness of it. I don't think four thousand home fans is going to put off. These stadiums are massive, so four thousand fans isn't really that that impressive inside a inside a what is going to be a nine-tenths empty stadium. Yeah, it's interesting because that kind of leads me on to my next question, which was, does it really matter? Because right now, does it transcend football almost because of the human element of us being outside of stadiums for so long and people have been waiting for this moment and the impact that it's had on people, this whole pandemic and not being able to go to the ground on a Saturday afternoon and watch their team. I think sometimes you just have to take that with a pinch of salt and just say, well, it is what it is. You know, there's not really much that can be done about it apart from the fact that it's been so long that football doesn't really matter in this situation. Yeah, I think it's 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 going to take a a manager with a hell of a brass neck to come out and say, "Well, they had four thousand fans in and we weren't allowed any, so that's why we lost the game." Like it, it that is a racing driver's excuse that compared to to some of the actual factors that that uh, pop up in games. I think I think you're right. I think. You know, you have to sort of work with the situation we've unfortunately been placed in, and and say that, you know, um, it's just nice to have some sort of fans back because I don't know about you two, but I'm absolutely sick of watching match of the day and the sound engineer just. I don't think I've ever seen any any game, any highlights package, or any live game where the um, the crowd track that they play over the top of the game matches the game in any way. It's, it, oh, it winds me up. I can't stand up. it, Marley. 
honestly, I cannot stand it either. It's one of those things where I don't it, understand why we're pretending that there's crowd noise. Like, why are we pretending there's a crowd in the stadium? We've had fans locked out of stadiums for seven and a half months. Why are we pretending that it doesn't exist? I mean, imagine looking back in five years time at highlights packages and wondering why they've put fake crowd noise over it and you know you'll have kids asking their dads in 10 years when they grow up saying dad why is there fake crowd noise on this footage and like what are you going to say to that i just think it's stupid we just need to act in the way that we're supposed to act there's no fans that's just the way it is i think they've mixed um mr trick um remember on a, I can't remember what advert it was. It was maybe a Nike advert or something. Yeah, it was the Nike uh, cage football advert with the silver football. Um, and they had that Elvis Presley song. A little less conversation, a little more action. <laughs> Why not put that on over the top? And then it will seem like the football's better than what it has Another been. mad decision from Chairman Stefan. <laughs> That's another one for Stefan's, uh, Stefan's football club. But I, I would play the Benny Hill theme music when Newcastle are chasing the ball around for 90 minutes every week. <laughs> 30% possession and it's just uh, Benny Hill as Isaac Hayden tries to, tries to close down three Chelsea players at the weekend. So, Well, I'm not sure we'll be seeing any Benny Hill music at St. James's Park, but certainly plenty of smiling faces up and down the country now that the rules have been released by the government that lockdown will be lifted in England on the 2nd of December. And with that, depending on which tier that your club is placed into, you may well be able to go and take in a football match as soon as a couple of weeks' time. Great news, brilliant for football clubs up and down the land, great for supporters. The rules are a maximum of 4,000 spectators in any one stadium or 50% of the capacity, depending on which one is fewer. And that comes if you are in tier one. If you're in tier two, the maximum spectator capacity will be 2,000. So some good news to kick off the podcast and good news if you're a Burnley fan as well, because there was two Premier League fixtures last night and one of them resulted in a three points for Burnley back to winning ways at their happy place of Turf Moor. We'll speak about it next here on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Listen to the latest Premier League news, updates and match reports now. Just ask Open Sport Social. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Football Social Daily from Sports Social. I'm Niall. I've got Stefan and Marley alongside me. And there were two top flight fixtures last night. Burnley versus Crystal Palace at Turf Moor and Wolverhampton Wanderers versus Southampton at Molyneux. But it is Turf Moor where we'll start, where it's become a happy place again for the Clarets. They managed to beat Crystal Palace by a goal to nil. It was their first win of the season. And the first thing that I could think of, Stefan, when I saw this result and watched the highlights, that it was a massive relief for Sean Dyche because they've had a real tough time of it at the start of the season, Burnley, uh, but they've managed to get that monkey off their back of the first win. Yeah, great great news for Burnley. Off the bottom as well, which is great. Um, oh no, they weren't on the bottom, were they? They were second bottom though. No, they're out of the bottom out three. Out of the bottom three, yeah. So yeah, great for them. I've... <laughs> I reckon there's a lot of clubs who are very similar to Burnley in that league. And coincidentally, a lot of them kind of played last night. I'm going to band in um, Southampton uh, in with them uh, and Crystal Palace in with them. I think these teams need um, strikers to go on a goal-scoring run. And Burnley just haven't had that whatsoever, which is exactly why they're in where they are in the Premier League right now. Uh, Crystal Palace have also not got that... um, that, that striker who's going on a on a goal scoring run, Batisiai, I think is like the main striker at Crystal Palace. Um, whereas Southampton have, 
um, in in the form of Danny Ings, which is why they are where where they are. So I feel like all these teams are really pretty similar, They're kind of like all scrapping around a little bit. And it's just the look of whether somebody goes on a run or not. And Burnley haven't had that. Uh, and Chris Wood finally pops up with a goal. But I've got to say, I'll be honest with you, Niall, the key word that you said there was highlights. I also watched the highlights. And even after 30 seconds of the highlights, I found myself getting drawn to watching Peter Crouch videos on Soccer AM on some kind of social media somewhere else. That's that's how grim the game was. <laughs> I can see why you did that. It's never really that tantalising a prospect when you see it on paper, is it? Burnley versus Crystal Palace. But it's been big for Burnley that they've had two big players back like me and Tarkovsky. It looked like one of the strongest starting 11s I've seen all season for Sean Dyche. Um, so yeah, a great result for them, Marley. Uh, something they desperately needed and even though we've spoken about perhaps a lack of cutting edge up front having two big players like me and Tarkovsky back is a boost for them yeah and uh, you know we, I, I take the mick out of Burnley a lot and I probably will till the day I die let's be honest but um, they are that that style of, of, of football will always get results at some point that's why they've not been relegated in six or seven years despite you know playing playing the way they play it, it will get results over 38 games and I wasn't surprised to see them beat Crystal Palace um, last night. I think I I wouldn't put it past Burnley at home to get a result, and then you know they capitalised bit of a scrappy goal with with Kiyate making the mistake and and Wood pouncing, and that was it. They just shut up shop with now now they've got the full full strength um, defence back. They can they can be more confident in in closing games out, and that's what Sean Dyche will absolutely love because. You know that's what he he kind of kind of builds his his size to do, um, to be hard to score against and, and nick one or two if they can do that. So, yeah, it's great for great for Burnley, um, and it's great for the uh, the media because they can always go on that Jordan North happy place turf more thing, which I know they were sitting on for a few weeks. But um, yeah, it's uh, I don't I still I, I think I said it at the time when even when they were. Uh, bottom of the league. I don't think Burnley will, will be in that much trouble. I think they'll they'll grind out results as they as they do, and as we've seen for the last six or seven years. So a really important three points for Burnley last night at Turf Moor. A side note from last night's game, which I didn't realise, and I don't really know what I'm going to say about it, is that Burnley midfielder Johan Bear Goodmanson has now played 100 Premier League games. Wow. Yeah, I was shocked as well, Stefan. I don't really have <laughs> anything else to add uh, apart from that, apart from fair play to <laughs> Johan Berg-Goodmanson and fair play to Burnley for getting their first victory and, as we say, lifting themselves out of the Premier League relegation zone. Let's talk quickly about Crystal Palace, though. They were without Wilfred Zaha, and I know we talk about Zaha all the time and it's almost inevitable and quite laboured that you end up talking about him every time you talk about Palace, but the fact that they looked like they lacked cutting edge without him and they looked like they lacked a bit of intensity without him. They definitely missed him and that just shows how important he is to this Crystal Palace side. Yeah, I think you can sum it up dead quickly by just saying it was unexciting. I, I can't really remember um, a, sing, a single uh, piece of play from Crystal Palace last night. And, and and I'll be honest with you, I did watch the extended highlights, not just the highlights. Um yeah, I can't. I can't really say anything more than that. I'm not. I'm not qualified enough to go into the reasons why they need to, what they need to do to change things. I think they just need a bit of cutting edge. I just find them quite tedious to watch. Um, yeah, Zaha's everything for them at the minute. I think, um, and it shows when he's not playing. 
Yeah, and I think it just goes to show how integral he is to Crystal Palace, where, as I mentioned before, we always seem to talk about him where Crystal Palace are involved, whether that's will he stay at the club or will he leave, or whether he's playing or not. And, you know, when a player has that impact in terms of the narrative around a football club and around games, then it just goes to show how important they truly are. Final score at Turf Moor last night in the Premier League. Burnley won, Crystal Palace nil. The other game that took place shortly after that one finished was at Molyneux, where Wolverhampton Wanderers drew one apiece with Southampton. This was an entertaining game, a much more entertaining game than the Burnley one, it must be said. Uh, I thought 1-1 was a fair result, but the main story around this one, Stefan, was that Theo Walcott scored his first Southampton goal for nearly 15 years. And I think this is a really good piece of evidence uh, for the argument where people say some players just fit in at certain clubs. Uh, Maybe Walcott's one of those players because I'm not just saying this because I support Portsmouth and he's a Southampton player, but I just think that even the last six or seven years, he's been underwhelming, Theo Walcott. He was not very good at the last few years at Arsenal, hasn't been great at Everton, uh, and now he's starting to look a little bit more lively at Southampton. It's gone downhill for him, uh, him ever since Sven-Goran Eriksson named him in the England squad as a 16-year-old. That's That was the peak of his career for young Theo, I'm afraid. Yeah, it definitely peaked. I think when he scored that hat-trick for England against Croatia in 2007 or 2008 or whenever it was, you know, he's was, been was a flop the, since then, I'd argue. the Wally in the Brolly campaign? Um, Steve, Steve McLaren as manager? I think it might well have been because I don't think we qualified for the Euros, so you might be absolutely spot on. Yeah... Um, but certainly I think that he's underachieved Theo Walcott in the time that he's been in the Premier League. He's 30 now. He was 16 when he scored his first goal for Southampton. So it's been a while. Yeah, I've, he, he's two things really. One is, let's let's take the Burnley analogy. He's gone back to his happy place, which is good. Uh, you can see that he's dead happy to be playing there. I'm glad that he scored the goal last night. I thought it, it was an easy chance, but he took it well. Um, what upsets me about Theo Walcott is how unanimated he is when, when he shares his feelings about this on Twitter. Great feeling to get my first goal back in Saints Colours. Shame we didn't get all three points, but it's still a good point away from home. Boring comment. What you want to say is, I've scored again. Get in there. I'm back, baby. <laughs> yes. Um, which he didn't do. Um, but yeah, took his goal well. Um, and it was a, a better game to watch than um, than uh, the Palace-Burnley um, game. Um, and it was attacking as well. Uh, Walcott had a few chances. Uh, probably should have scored again. Um and Wolves, Wolves' next one got back into it. Uh, a nice kind of uh, follow-up from a uh, who, who, who's uh, it was Raul Jimenez uh, off yeah. the, off the post or a good save from keeper. I can't remember. And, yeah, it was uh, off the post. Neto just just follows it in nicely. So it it was a good game. It, it had pace to it. It was quick. It was attacking. Um, and at the end, yet yeah, a fair result. Off the back of that, then Marley, a couple of questions. First of all, your thoughts on Theo Walcott and whether you think he's underachieved in his career to date. And secondly, Alex McCarthy put in a good performance between the sticks for Southampton last night. So just wondering whether he might be on the radar of England at some point soon. Uh, with Walcott, I think it's I think it's hard not to say he's, he's underachieved. Um, I think he still had a decent career, but because of the the hype that was around him in in his early days, I think it's always going to be hard to live up to that. Um, and the thing that the thing that got me was um, he stayed, you know, he was at Arsenal in his prime, and he was basically um, confused about where he wanted to play. You know, he wanted to play up front, but he wasn't good enough up front. And then he he didn't fancy playing on the wing, which I think eventually led to him um, leaving the club and deciding to go and uh, go somewhere else, and ended up at Everton. I think he's he's just a bit of a curious case like I think that that's plagued him for his career I think if he'd have played 
as many games as he has as, as a striker, I think he might have had more um, more success and, and maybe a little bit, you know, reached a little bit higher in his career and, and things like that because I think he's he's decent enough finisher, just he wasn't in the right um, club at Arsenal with, with, the, with the chances that he got up front, if, if that's where he wanted to play, I think. He's, as a winger, he's always been quick, so it's always been temptation for managers to play him on the wing, but he's never been able to cross a ball, has he? He's always been more of a, a goal-scoring, like trying to get in behind and, and nick a goal type of winger than a than a creative one who's going to put loads of crosses in and things like that. But, um, yeah, I think it, it probably does have to go down as he didn't quite hit the heights of, of what he possibly should have and... Um, having said that, I do think he's a, a good fit at Southampton. I think that's the club for him um, at the minute, and uh, I think it'll probably he'll probably make it permanent in the summer if he carries on as he is, because he seems to be getting enough chances there. And I think if everyone's fit at Southampton, he probably gets in the team. So fair play to him for for taking that um, opportunity. And what about McCarthy? He made one really important save last night just after half-time where he kind of kept Southampton level pegging and then they went up the other end and took the lead. So it was an important stop from him. Yeah, I'm not sure about McCarthy because he tends to have, like, he has good games and then I think sometimes he just, he, he looks poor at times, I think. And I mean, I know Southampton are doing well at the minute, but I'm I'm not massively just sure about him to be honest I think he has he has good games and then he he doesn't look much in the next game and it's kind of a little bit back and forward I think you know he made a good save from from Pudence last night um in the in the second half um and he he did what you expect him to do in that kind of thing but um I'm thinking back do you know what's actually sticking in my head when I think about Alex McCarthy is the other week when they were playing Aston Villa and Grealish had that shot and he just didn't see it coming and he, he just didn't dive. <laughs> he just didn't dive for it and it ended up like going into his bottom corner and he looked like an outfielder who just didn't know how to dive. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, England do need, you know, something else, don't they? In, their, um, in the goalkeeping situation, they need a, a, a permanent guy who's going to take it and Nick Pope had a fantastic game for Burnley last night and yeah, you have to see whether he can he can take that shirt off Pickford if he continues to perform badly. But to be honest, I, I don't see McCarthy as as somebody who can get into the, the squad of the minute. I think it's going to take injuries or or something to happen to one of the other goalkeepers before. <laughs> or Gareth Southgate to have an out-of-body experience before he drops Pickford. Oh, he's not Glenn Hoddle. <laughs> Calm down. Well, to be fair, I think um, what I would say in McCarthy's defence is he probably suits the system a little bit more. If you look at Nick Pope and you know say he's poor with his feet, um, you could probably look at McCarthy and say he's you know Southampton style is a little bit better, um, considering you know how how the teams play. But I don't know. We'll have to see. But I I, I don't rate him massively in terms of an international future. Yeah, I'm with you. I don't think we'll see Alex McCarthy make an England squad anytime soon. I do think England's goalkeeping ranks are actually pretty good but as you mentioned there are always going to be question marks over Jordan Pickford and from one possible England international to a player that is an England international Connor Cody but actually incredibly last night Stefan the Wolves captain missed his first league game for the club since 2017 it's a ridiculous record it's actually quite remarkable that he's been able to keep himself fit for so long three seasons or more even without missing a game it's amazing that record 
in fact, the only reason he actually missed the game was because he got a notification on his phone about being in close contact with someone who had coronavirus. So an NHS app stopped him from playing for Wolves. It wasn't even a proper injury or COVID itself. It was a bit of a difficult one to take. But yeah, as I said, insane record. Oh, he got done by the app. He got done by the app. Oh, no. Yeah, that's an incredible record. That that must be... uh... Gareth Barry's record from a few years back, surely. I'm not sure, but three or more seasons in the landscape that we're discussing now with the Premier League, where injuries, the narrative around that has pretty much dominated all the chat so far this season. We've seen five substitutes reintroduced as well this year already because of player welfare and concerns over that. So for him as a defender to have played in the Championship and the Premier League to have kept himself fit for so long is absolutely incredible. Yeah, some some footballers are just a bit... Psycho. You know, when you're a kid, you used to play against like some psycho players in your Sunday league and you knew who they were. Um, the, the Premier League's got a couple of psycho players. Jamie Vardy's one, he'll play with a broken arm. Connor Cody, he'll, he'll play no matter what. Um, yeah, I love it. Great. I mean, Connor Cody's won me over big time. Um, I think probably this time last year on this podcast, I would have been slating him a little bit. Um, because he was he was getting his getting a little sniff for England, and I was thinking, ah, does, is he really an England player? Is he is he good enough? Um, and I think the stability that he brings to to Wolves, um, and such, it, it's an impressive feat to play eighty odd games in the Premier League without missing one. Um, that does speak for itself. Um, and he's been kind of doing been doing a job for England a bit as well. Um, yeah, who, who knows? Maybe Southampton wouldn't have seemed so fluid up front last night had Connor uh, Cody been playing um, because Walcott, Armstrong, um, Shea Adams, um, they, there, was, there was a good bit of connection going on there last night. And um, but I, I think they probably had it a bit better over the Wolves' uh, back line. Um, so it shows how he's missed as well. So, yeah, good on Connor Cody. Um, impressive record. I wasn't expecting that. I watched an interview earlier this week with the West Ham midfielder Declan Rice who said that it was Connor Cody's first England game. It was his first cap and he actually stood up in the dressing room and kind of made a bit of a mini speech and told everyone what it means to him to play for England and that he hoped everyone else felt the same. It was along those sorts of lines and it takes some balls to do that in a team room full of in a changing room full of your peers especially on your first England cap so I just think it shows the character of the man and it it shows his likability as well I think he's really shown a bit of personality too in his post-match interviews and stuff so I'm a big fan of Connor Cody and Wolves will be hoping that they have Connor Cody back for their next run of fixtures because they are looking pretty tough it has to be said next up for Wolverhampton Wanderers in the Premier League is Arsenal, then it's Liverpool, Aston Villa, Chelsea, Burnley, Tottenham and Manchester United on the 28th of December before a game against Brighton, the first one of 2021. It's a tough, tough run, Marley. And if they want to place themselves in the European picture again this season, they'll have to win some of those games. Yeah, I think um, I think Wolves have, have, have probably been a little bit, uh, got a couple of gears b- below what they were last year. Um and I think I don't know maybe that if that's the the balance of the the weeks you know not playing in Europe and things like that and they they they're sort of readjusting to not playing twice a week you know we talk about you know how teams have to adjust when they get into Europe I think Wolves have been in the Europe in Europe for the last two years so maybe they're having having to come back to getting used to just playing once a week and getting it um, done in the Premier League um, week after week but I think there's 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 more to come I think they're um, still 
adjusting to life without Jota. I think, you know, Pedro Neto's getting a few chances and, and doing pretty well. I think uh, Traore started for the first time in a few weeks last uh, last night as well. I think something's going on with his contract or something that, that might be uh, playing out in the background. But I think, you know, Wolves, we, we know about Wolves. They've, they've got the level to, to compete with the big boys and and to uh, to give them a bloody nose when they come up against them, I think they'll they'll be fancying the Arsenal game next week the way they're playing. Um, you know, Arsenal haven't looked much uh, up to much in the last few weeks, um, so they'll they'll fancy that. And I think their 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 style suits them when they play bigger teams because they've got a genuine threat on the counter attack. They've got pace in Traore and Neto and Podence. They've got creativity in midfield, and they've still got the wing backs to to fully settle in and to start. Um, you know, reaching the level that that they can, you know, former Barcelona fullback and and one of the the highest rated fullbacks in Ryan Aitnuri at the other on the other side. I think he's, uh, he's I think he's only like twenty one or something. So he's got plenty of of maturing to do and and settling in to do. So I think once they get them fit and playing, um, I think you'll start to see the best of Wolves and yeah, you know, as you say that you've they've always got Jimenez up front. They've always got a threat. They've got someone who can score twenty goals a season. So. Um, it's but having said that, it's time because the, you know the the table's starting to settle down slightly now, um, and Wolves probably aren't as high as they wanted to be, especially when you see Aston Villa and and Southampton mixing it, you know, higher up the table. They're probably looking, thinking, why can't we do that? Why can't we be similar to Leicester? They'll probably think there's not much uh, change in in quality between them and Leicester, man for man. So um, yeah, they'll. They'll, I think they'll they'll get better, and they they should they they need to get better as well because, you know, the sum of their parts is is far higher than where they are in the table right now. Yeah, a tough run of fixtures coming up for Wolverhampton Wanderers. We'll have to see how they fare. But their final game of 2020 is against Manchester United. And it's Manchester United who we'll be talking about next here on Football Social Daily in Floodlight Focus, where United fan and author Wayne Barton will be joining us to discuss the Red Devils. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. To hear the latest Premier League news for your team, just ask Open Sport Social. Welcome back to Football Social Daily, the daily Premier League podcast, keeping you in the loop with all the latest goings on from the English top flight. So make sure you hit that subscribe button and that way you won't ever miss an episode of the podcast. As soon as a new one's ready, you'll be notified straight away. Right then, it's time now for Floodlight Focus, where we take a look at one of our 20 Premier League clubs. And the spotlight today is on Old Trafford and Wayne Barton, author and big Manchester United fan, is joining us to discuss the Red Devils. How are you doing, Wayne? Not bad, Niall. How are you? Yeah, pretty good, thanks. Thank you for joining us, first of all. It's been a weird season to be a Manchester United fan so far. There's been plenty of ups and downs. Some of the ups mainly coming in the Champions League with a big victory over RB Leipzig and, of course, that brilliant win in Paris over Paris Saint-Germain. But in the Premier League, it certainly hasn't quite gone to plan. And I mentioned ups and downs. I guess that's been the story of Manchester United for the last five or six years really so it must be quite a big source of frustration for you as a supporter that Manchester United can be brilliant in one fixture and simply not turn up for the next it is um, it is frustrating obviously because um, you're a fan and you want your team to win every single game and um, if you're a Manchester United fan of touching 40 you used to seeing them winning a lot um, of, of games um, but I think for this season in particular um, 
I'd, I would ask anyone who's upset with the way that United are doing to ask. I'd ask them what they were expecting from this season, really, because um, you mentioned the last three or four years and the roller coaster that we've been on. And as soon as the transfer window shut and we were left with the squad um, that we've got um, with a transfer policy that I didn't think was reflective of the fact that we qualified for the Champions League last season. Um, I felt that we were doomed for that. The one thing that I've said, I say doomed, it sounds really catastrophic, but yeah, but what I mean is we were resigned to the fate which we're going to see for the next few few months because the composition of the squad, particularly the defence, um, it has such an impact on the rest of the team. Um, so obviously... If you can't build a solid defence, um, you've got to compensate for that in midfield. And then that obviously has a knock-on effect to the attack. Um, United have had that problem for a few years. We look like we're in a position to kick on this summer. And we haven't. So the problem that we've got is a problem that we've had for the last few years. Um, yes, you still want to see improvement from that within the players that Ollie's got. Um, but this is, especially in a in an unpredictable league like what we've got at the moment, that United are vulnerable to that. United, I, I said last season that we finished third with a fair win behind us because we had a good run of form and players were fit at a key time and Oli had got a good 11, um, inspired by Fernandez, uh, Fernandez, this great little system um, and all the confidence was right. It ran out a little bit at the end, but we managed to get over the line. Now, that was a platform to build upon. We haven't done that and... The fair wind isn't there now. We've got a few injuries. They can't field that 11 the same way that he did before. Um, and teams have figured that out. Well, they've learned how to play against it a little bit. So that plan B is still the composite of the, the squad, the, mm. you know, the, the players that he inherited. And it's not a great plan B. And, and he's trying to work out this plan A as well. And yeah, it's all ended up in this at the moment. It's a mishmash of form. And where we are, we can be. PSG and we can tear Leipzig apart but then we can do what we did against um, Crystal Palace where we looked like we could have conceded five mm. um, so it, it is very much up and down like that but, but like I said I, I'm not saying I expect us to lose 6-1 at home to, to Spurs but I, I do expect us to be up and down because that's the nature of our team It sounds like from what you're saying that you've actually got a fair bit of sympathy for the manager Ole Gunnar Solskjaer would that be a fair assessment? Yeah I do but also I want to caveat that with saying I'm I, it's not so much Ollie um, who gets the support rather than the manager in charge and, and the things that he's got to deal with. It's the same way I, I felt about Van Gaal and the same way I felt about Mourinho up until the last summer um, where it, everything sort of fell apart for, for Mourinho and he sort of helped that along as well. But I certainly have a lot of sympathy for the managers. Mourinho is a good example um, of this comparison because in the summer where he finished second, he might have expected to be backed especially considering the fact that Woodward had given him a contract in a new contract in the January, but he wasn't backed with any of the targets that he really wanted to sign. And so he sort of burned the house down. And we're in that situation again with Ollie. Um, he might have wanted to sign Van der Beek, but you can also see that there were this three or four glaring holes in the team, which Ollie's not going to be blind to. There was obviously the chase for Jaden Sancho as well. Um, and also this sort of talk about you can't replace one defender because you've, we've already got a lot of defenders at the club. Do you know, well, that that's a very wrong policy to build upon. That's the policy that undermined Mourinho because he wanted a new centre-off and they were holding against him that he'd signed Lindelof and Bailly, which is fair 
but you can't run a football club like that. You've got to improve um, when when you're in a position where that improvement will make a big difference. United have been in that position a lot of times over the last few years, and they've never kicked on in that moment where they could uh, move forward. And I feel like Oli has been let down by that, um, but he's not the only one. So yeah, I do have a lot of sympathy for him, but um, like I said, I don't think he's the only one. As I say, it's been a difficult start to the Premier League season for you. You're currently 10th in the table after eight games. What's the ambition now for the rest of the campaign? Because at the start of the season, it was no doubt cement yourselves in the Champions League places again. Is that still the expectation? Is that still the aim? Do you think that that can be done between now and the end of the season? It has to be the ambition. I don't know about the expectation. The thing is, like you've said, and like we've seen, it's such a weird season that United could win the game in hand and they're in touching distance to the top. And that gives you like this false sense of where United are. In both senses, really. You know, It's not as catastrophic as saying they're going to get relegated, but also we shouldn't be talking about them as title contenders, even with the league being as weird as it is. Um, because they just don't have... They don't have the strength within the squad for it. Um, I mean, building I w- on that, you could even look at Everton, who have a very similar record to Manchester United in terms of games won, drawn and lost in the Premier League this season. In fact, they've played a game more than United and won that extra game, and they're in sixth. And like you say, it's uh, an interesting dynamic that the Premier League season has taken this year. Yeah, I mean, and that's the context of a 20, 20-team league and you're comparing against a team against another. But United... And this is the the thing for Solskjaer. He doesn't have an hiding place. United are judged on their own standards. They're judged on... I don't mean they're, they're any different to any other club with that. But I'm talking about, you know, Arteta will be judged on Arsenal's standards. Um, and so so is the same for Solskjaer, Guardiola, Klopp, and so on. So Solskjaer is going to be defined by what he does at United. And that's not going to be in the context of, you know, Woodward isn't going to say, oh, well, it was a weird league season, you've finished seventh. Um, we'll, we'll go again. If you finish the seventh, you'll end up with a sack. That's the way that it's going to go. Um, I'm still not convinced that he finishes fourth and, and saves his job. Um, so it's, it's a Because it's such a weird season... It's like you and I are having this conversation about what's logical and what's rational, but you can't apply that in a in a way. I I think you know I, I see a lot of what Ollie's building. I can see the sense in in patience and keeping faith with him, but um, this is the logical um, conversation that you're having between two adults and football isn't being like that at the moment, and um, it, it's a, a very strange one. <laughs> Certainly isn't on Twitter, Wayne, is it? No, but yeah, but that's a, like a it's an echo chamber as well, and 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 this sort of melting pot of everyone wanting to say something more controversial than the last person, and then you have. I try and be reasonable, but I think that goes the other way as well, that people are showing so much faith. I mean, I'll, I'll be frank. I mean, you asked me before we started talking about this, are you all in or all out? I, I'm, like I said earlier, I've, I've got faith in the manager and want the manager to, to have time because perhaps the only thing we haven't seen at United is a manager completing the transition and seeing what he does with that. Um, whether, whether or not that means I've got faith in Solskjaer, I, I, I'm still not convinced completely because... Yeah, they're not was... mutually exclusive, are they? Exactly, and people think that they are. People think because you're supporting this manager that you meant the, you think the last manager was a disaster. I supported Mourinho for a long time, even in spite of the terrible football, because of his pedigree and the fact that you've got to trust a manager with pedigree against a, a man who's running it who doesn't have pedigree. Um, and then it all fell apart, and then it starts again. And... The point I've always made with Oli, his future and United's future is that there's no guarantee that the next transition, there's no standout candidate who comes in and fixes this. 
So oversee someone who's obviously got Sir Alex in his ear. He's obviously got him sort of giving him indications of who to go after, the way to play. Um, I'm not saying that Solskjaer is a puppet. I, I don't think he is. He's his own man and he's got his own way of playing football. I just see the positives in what, as I did under Mourinho, as I did under Van Gaal, I see the positives of what he's trying to do. And... Um, and like you said, it's complex. It's, it's they're not mutually exclusive terms or throughout football, but people like to do that because they think if they can compartmentalize it in a way that's easy for them to understand, um, then it it means you can just say Solskjaer in or Solskjaer out. It's so much more complicated than that. Yeah, I one hundred percent agree. It is far more complex than what some people make it out to be. But we kind of have this running joke on the podcast, and we've mentioned it in recent times that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, every time he does badly, the figure of Maurizio Pochettino is like the Grim Reaper stood there, almost willing to relieve him of his duties. And <laughs> it's just one of those strange things in football that every time things go badly for Solskjaer, people are pining for Pochettino, and that starts to bubble up to the surface again, and people kind of start to bang that Pochettino drum, I guess you could say. Yeah, I don't know if you can remember, well, it's not that long ago, so you should. Um, before Pochettino was out of a job, um, United lost at Newcastle. and, and it Yeah, looked, I remember Matt Longstaff scored from outside yeah, the box. And, and it looked like Oli was, it looked like curtains for Oli because it was, it was tremendously dire that game. And probably in the week after that, um, there was a lot of rumours about Zidane and Ed Ever was spotted with Woodward and everyone was saying, oh, they put two and two together and Zidane was going to be the man. Obviously, Zidane conveniently jumped back to Madrid and just left only one person who was going to be the prominent name once he was um, dismissed from, from Spurs. Um, and he is he's a spectre. There's no denying it because he, he's not come out and, you know, you n- normally see this brotherhood of managers, or you used to, where they wouldn't speak about other jobs or they wouldn't speak about... Um, they wouldn't put um, fuel on the fire, and Pochettino's happy to do that, which I don't think is very classy. Um, but that's by the by. One obvious factor is: is he a better coach than Solskjaer? Obviously, it looks like he is because of what he did at Spurs. It's a tremendous job that he did. The other thing I would say, in in the sort of nature of this, the complexity of it, is that United's problems are complex and one of the biggest problems they said that United have is getting the players up for the smaller games, so-called smaller games. Now Pochettino went on record at Spurs as saying um, you know, that they didn't want to win the League or the League Cup wasn't important or the FA Cup wasn't important to them. Was it before a semi-final in the FA Cup or something? He said it wasn't important to them. Mourinho did something similar when he dropped the players, he rested players for League games against Arsenal and Spurs um, when there was the Europa League the problem that that gives to the squad is that it says that you can afford to take some games for granted and others not. And you can't do that at Manchester United. You really can't do that at any top club, but particularly at United where they're seen as such a scalp. They're one of those top three, four clubs in English football. Well, they're the top club in British football, so everyone sees them as a scalp to to go after. I, I say top club in terms of historical reputation and, 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 and obviously Liverpool and, and City are, be- are obviously better at the moment. But... In terms of the reputation, the fixture that everyone looks for, the calendar, and the fact that they are galvanised by the fact that people do get results at Old Trafford, so they have that extra impetus, and and you can't change that reputation, you can't change that way of thinking within the club, if you're saying that some games are more important than others. Every single game at United is has to be a cup final, um, and Solskjaer, I believe, has that, but it takes a long time 
to engineer that, um, as we've seen with Klopp at Liverpool. Now, he's got so many injuries, but he can just turn that team around and they can look, they can purr the same way. And that that's only the product of five years in charge. Um, I'm not saying that you give Solskjaer five years. If he's the wrong man, he's the wrong man. I'm just saying that when you see the benefit of, of that faith and patience, it's a, it would be foolish to throw it away when there's elements what you can build on. Definitely, I think, in terms of that mentality that was drummed into the players under Sir Alex about not taking your foot off the gas and every game has to be a a must-win fixture, I think that that is kind of embodied in an example I used on the podcast earlier this week where I demonstrated in a FA Cup game against Arsenal a few years ago, Manchester United had a midfield of Raphael, Fabio, Darren Gibson and John O'Shea and still managed to beat Arsenal and win the game. So maybe that mentality has slightly ebbed away from Manchester United in recent years. Now then one thing that is for certain if Solskjaer's future isn't is that Christmas is on the horizon and of course people will be hunting for stocking fillers this year and books make perfect stocking fillers and thankfully we've got you who's written plenty of Manchester (laughs) United books. Tell us about your body of work so far Wayne if there's anyone interested in checking out what you do for a living. So this year I've had three books published um very lucky to do that by the way and don't take it for granted that um, sure. I, I get work published. So the first one was Kesar Sarah, which is a book on um, the Sexton and Atkinson eras at Manchester United which was previously um, undervalued in, in United literature so I, I thought it was important to tell that story to sort of talk about the United that um, Ferguson inherited mm. um, so I, I did that, that was a, a follow on from uh, a book and a film I did with BT Sport, uh, Too Good To Go Down, which was on the relegation, the Pulse Buzz B years. So it's sort of uh, following that trend. Um, obviously, um, after that this year, there was the biography of Eric Cantona, uh, which was published in April, and also on, on David Beckham as well. Um, but also, I, I'm very proud of a book I did on Jimmy Murphy, who was the assistant, assistant to Matt Busby, and, and obviously they took charge of the club after the Munich Air disaster, and, and that's available. The Jimmy Murphy book and King Eric books, if I can give a little plug to my publisher because they're on a massive discount with Reach Sport at the moment. So that's a good place to get them. Um, yeah, so thank you for letting me plug four books. If you <laughs> if you don't mind me, no just worries. throw in two more in. You mentioned Raphael yeah, and Fabio. Um, I'm actually working with them on a book that's coming out next year. Um, All right. Yeah, so um, that's really entertaining to work on. And obviously Raphael's back at Old Trafford on the night that we um, are talking about this. Um after being man of the match in the first game. Um, so I'm working on that. And obviously, um, yeah, that, that's it for the, for my plugs. I'm sorry about that, but good, good to get them in. <laughs> no worries at all. Make sure you do use that link that Wayne just mentioned if you do want to check out the literature that he's written on that great club, Manchester United. It's been absolutely fascinating to talk to you, Wayne, about United and about the work that you've done. I'll be keeping an eye out for that Raphael and Fabio book as well. Best of luck with the writing in the future and appreciate your time. Take care. Thank you. Right, that's it for Football Social Daily for today. Thank you very much, Marley. Cheers, lads. Thanks, Stefan. Yeah, cheers, mate. I'm off to go eat a slice of uh, jam on toast and watch highlights of Theo Walcott score a hat-trick. <laughs> and we'll speak to you again tomorrow. To hear the latest Premier League news for your team, just ask Open Sports Social.